here we are, the book of Malachi. We've made it through all the minor prophets, or we will today. And we also made it to the end of the Old Testament. In this trip, we've traveled over 400 years till we get to Malachi. And as Malachi talks, uh, he is, this, this. once again, this is one of the post-exile prophets. And at this point in time, uh, the last two Sundays we've had, we've had the two that have, that have prophesied, Haggai and Zechariah. One was for the rebuilding of the temple, right? We saw that through Ezra. And then after that got done, if we go back into the Old Testament, we would find that Nehemiah came and rebuilt the wall. That's gone by. Almost 100 years have, have transpired before Malachi is writing. Uh, most, most folks put him uh, at about four... Whoa, where you go? Let's, there we go. Oh, there's that little thing, right? He's right about 432 is kind of where most people put him. So over 100 years have passed. An entire generation is now in place. The generation that built the temple, the generation that built the wall are gone. And those, the next generation has forgotten God. And Malachi comes to talk to them. And I want you to remember, once again, for over 400 years, God has sent prophet after prophet after prophet to say, return to me. And he has allowed even both the northern tribes of Israel and the southern tribes to be taken into exile. And yes, part of a remnant has come back, but they haven't fully served God. And this sometimes happens. A generation goes by. I've had the opportunity to have been part of building the physical walls of several churches. And, and it's one of those exciting things that you get to do. You, you, you sacrifice, you literally build the walls with your hands. I remember uh, in one of the churches that we were doing that, uh, when we got all, before we put the drywall in, we went with, mat, with markers and we wrote scripture verses on all the studs so that we would be surrounded by the word of God. And it's an exciting time. And people that, that are involved, how many have been involved in, in physically building a church? There's a couple, okay? But when we lose that, the next generation comes along and they're like going, wow, this is a nice church. I, I'm, I'm glad that I get to come here when I want to. There's no, the sweat equity's gone. The, the, the excitement of what it took to build a church and to watch it grow and to watch people get saved and the baptismal pool get stirred. 
and, and they, they begin to lose the zeal of what it's like to build something. And that's what happened with Israel. The temple's been rebuilt, the wall's been rebuilt, and they kind of went along their way. And Malachi is going to be an argument. God is going to argue with the people. And they're going to argue back. You will see a number of times throughout this, and they're a bit sarcastic with God. You know, I'm not too sure I would want to take that stance. It's like, okay, I hear the thunder. I'm sorry, God, but they do. And so we're going to look at how Malachi talks about their relationships. Because God is all about relationships, isn't he? I mean, if you look at the Ten Commandments, the Ten Commandments start out with your relationship with God. And then it starts, then it next goes to your relationship with your family. And then it goes to your relationship with the world. God is all about relationship, and he wants to have a relationship with each one of us, just like he wanted to have a special relationship with Israel, and they had forgotten it. So let's turn to Malachi chapter 1, and let's look at how God and the people of Israel argue. The oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel through Malachi I have loved you, said the Lord. But you said, how have you loved us? Was it not Esau, Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but I have hated Esau. And I have made the mountains of desolation and appointed his inheritance for the jackals of the wilderness. Though Edom says we have been beaten down, but we will return and build up the ruins. Thus says the Lord of hosts. They may build, but I will tear it down. And men will call them the wicked territory and the people toward whom God, the Lord God is indignant forever. Your eyes will see this and you will say, the Lord be magnified beyond the border of Israel. God starts with a statement. I love you. <laughs> Did you know God does love you? That's what he said on the cross, didn't he? He said, I love you. And God told Israel, I love you. And, and, but what did they say? Well, how did you love us? They didn't, they didn't look to see how God loved them. Have you ever felt like God didn't love you? It's okay. Some of us go through that. We're like, oh, God, I, I, I'm in the midst of all this stuff. Do you really love me? And what does God do with them? He says, I'm going to point you back. He says, I want you to look back to the time when I chose Jacob. Esau was what? He was the firstborn. He was the one that should have had the birthright. He was the one that, that, that Abraham's seed should have passed through, right? To be the blessing. But God said, I loved your father, Jacob. 
And Esau, Esau just became an afterthought. They became the Edomites. There is no Edomites today. You can't find them anywhere. God said, I love Jacob. And sometimes when we get in that place where we're not sure that God loves us, we need to take a look back and remember what it was like before God came into your life. Remember what it's like before the day that you knelt and said, Jesus, save me. Some of us do that in a, in a way that is, uh, is amazing, and others come very quietly, maybe at their bedside with their mom and dad. But when we, I want you to remember what it was like before Jesus came and even after he came. Look back and say, oh, wow, look at how God provided for me all of those years. Look what God has done in my life. Look where I could be. Look what, look what could have happened to me if God hadn't taken me and saved me. But he also says, look forward. Because he ends that with, your eyes will see this and you will say, the Lord is magnified beyond the borders of Israel. Look ahead. You know, there's sometimes things, things are hard. You know, one of, the, one of the hardest things I do as a pastor is to do funerals. Especially for people that I don't know whether they were saved or not. And what do you say? You know, we can, we can say, if, we're, if we know that somebody's saved, we can say, hey, we do not grieve as those who have no hope. Because why? We know where they are. But when you do a funeral for somebody that you don't know whether they're saved or not, it's, it's hard. And in those times, I look ahead and I say, you know, I, I really don't know. I don't know because everyone has an opportunity until they take their very last breath to ask Jesus to save them. Just like the thief on the cross has the, ha, took that opportunity as he hung there, literally dying to say, Jesus, save me. Let me be with you today in paradise. And Jesus said, absolutely. And as we see that, we can look forward and say, one day, look what I have to look forward to. Eternity in heaven with Jesus Christ. The people had forgotten to worship the God that loved them. Well, because of that, they had a little problem. In Malachi 1, 6 to 8, it says this. The son honors his father, and the servant his master. Then if I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my respect? Says the Lord God of hosts. O priests who despise my name. But you say, here's, here's their argument back. But you say, how have we despised your name? And he said, you are presenting defiled food upon my altar. You said, 
how have we defiled you? Do you hear that sassy teenager? How have we defiled you? Everybody else does it. Why can't I do it? You're, you're not fair. Sound familiar? I uttered a few of those words at one point in time. But when you present the blind for sacrifice, is it not evil? And when you present the lame and the sick, is it not evil? Why not offer it to your governor? Would he be pleased with you? Or would, you receive, or would he receive you kindly, says the Lord of hosts. You see, God said, bring me your best. And what did they bring him? They brought him their leftovers. They said, hey, God says, I want the, I want the best that you have. Can you imagine being invited to, to the governor's office? And the governor says, oh, we're having a potluck. And you walk in with an open bag of chips and, and, and seven-layer dips that's half-eaten. Well, I, I'm just thinking who our governor is. No, sorry. That was, that was, that was not politically correct nor, nor good for the... But they brought him leftovers, and he chastises them. You wouldn't do this. You wouldn't do this to somebody you respected, but yet you're doing it to me. And why? It was all about greed. It was about, oh, well, I'm going to give God something that's not perfect because I'm going to keep that, that, that the best lamb, the best bull, the best, you know, the best of my flock so that, so that it can give me a better product down the road so that it can, it can have, uh, so I can have a, a better flock, a better herd. But God had told them in Deuteronomy 15, 21, okay, he says, but if it has any defect, such as lameness or blindness or a serious defect, you shall not sacrifice it to the Lord your God. He says, I want your best. And they were giving him leftovers. But don't we do the same thing? Well, you know what? I, if I have time in my schedule, I'm going to read my Bible. And then you have your to-do list and, and all your, your, your marking off your to-do list. And then you get to the end of the day. Oh, man, I am so tired. I, I, okay, God, I'm going to read my Bible now. Tunk. Right? Oh, hey, God, uh, after I get all my bills paid and, and everything done out of my paycheck, if I have some left, I'll give some to you. Right? Our, our second best. Whatever's left over. God, when I become rich or when I become famous or successful, then I'll serve you. And of course, we see over and over again people who are rich, successful, famous. Do they have time for God? Oh, they may mention God. They may say, oh, well, thank you. Thank you, Lord. But they have lost 
putting Jesus first, putting God first in their life. Just as these people were offering the leftovers, they're offering God their second best. Whatever's left over, yeah, I'll give it to you. But God says to us a little bit different. As believers, God tells us in Romans 12, 1, therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to what? To present your bodies as a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. When we bring ourselves and the best of ourselves to God, it's a form of worship. Well, he, he has addressed how they've been, their relationship with God. Our verse for the year has been what, Matthew? He says, what? Love the Lord your God with all what? Your heart, soul, and mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Wow. Before I can love my neighbor, I have to love God with all my heart, soul, and my mind. He wants our very best. So he, he has chastised them over their relationship with him. Now he's going to chastise them about their relationship with their brothers. Look at Malachi chapter 2 and verse 10. Malachi 2 verse 10. It says, Do not all have one father, has not God created us? Why do, you, why do we deal treacherously each with his brother so as to profane the covenant of our fathers? Judah has dealt treacherously. An abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the sanctuary of God which he loves and has married the daughter of a foreign god. As he looks at what Israel has done, this goes all the way back to when Jeroboam and Rehoboam, the two sons of Solomon, said, hey, the Jeroboam decided that he was not going to follow Rehoboam, and so he took ten tribes away. And they went up to Samaria and they made that their capital. And they made Bethel as their, their place where they would worship because we're, they said, we're not going back to Jerusalem. We won't worship in Jerusalem anymore. And Israel started the worst part of it in that in Israel, they began to intermarry with the, with the people around them. And they bring it, brought in more gods. But the people in Judah were no better when Josiah, the last, the last king, came in, he remember he was eight years old? When Josiah came, he had to drive out all of the idols. He had to remove all of the idols from all of it. He said, you, you guys, you, and you hate your brothers. They would raid, the, the south would raid into the north, and the north would raid into the south. He says, what are you doing? You're brothers in Christ. Well, they weren't brothers in Christ. They were brothers in Yahweh. 
You're both sons of Abraham. What are you doing to each other? And that's what he's talking about here. He says, you need to be at peace with each other. Well, they couldn't. And the church got, or the church, the, the church is in turmoil. The, the, the children of Israel were in turmoil because they hated each other. And we can translate that today, can't we? Oh, well, we can't, we can't help those people because, well, they have a different name on their door. Goodness sakes. We, and we treat our brothers differently. Well, there's an interesting thing that happens when, when godliness ceases, when you're not worshiping who you should be worshiping, when, we, when we're having problems with our brothers in, in Christ. Because once godliness is gone, goodness is not far behind it. Goodness is not far behind it. You see, the last true great awakening that we had, the last great revivals that we had in the United States was with Billy Graham back in the 60s. Billy Graham would fill stadiums with thousands and thousands of people. And we saw, we saw churches came together from all denominations to support and to be part of that team. And then, and then that time passed. And here we are, a generation later. And what do we face? The only time we fill stadiums is when there's a sporting event. Not when somebody gets up and preaches. We aren't seeing God work like he has. The other day I, had to, I, I, I hadn't talked with one of my pastor friends for, for quite a while and I texted him and said, hey, how you doing? And his church is closed. And it was a, he, he's a, he is a, fundamental preaching person and, and, and his church was reaching families and, but it's closed. And man, my heart grieved. But once godliness is gone, goodness is not far behind. Because the next thing that he comments on is our relationships in our family. Folks, the family is the battleground today. This is not going to be a comfortable section that I'm going to talk about right now. But it's in God's word. So let's look at Malachi 2, 14 to 16. Yet you say, for what reason? Because the Lord has been a witness between you and the wife of your youth, against whom you have dealt treacherously, though he is your companion and your wife by covenant. 
but not one of you, not one has done, so that he has a remnant of the Spirit. And what did that one do while he was seeking a godly offspring? Take heed then to your spirit, and let no one deal treacherously against his wife of your youth. For I hate divorce, says the Lord, the God of Israel. And him who covers his garment with wrong, says the Lord of hosts. So take heed your spirit, take, take heed to your spirit, that you do not deal treacherously. For you have wearied the Lord with your words, yet you say, How have we wearied the Lord? How have we wearied him? In that you say, Everyone who does evil is good. In the sight of the Lord, and He delights in them. Or where is the God of justice? First of all, I want you to understand what He's saying here. Marriage is the first thing that God, cre- the first institution that God created, and it is a marriage is a covenant between a man and a woman. You didn't let me finish. And God. Now you can say amen. See, it's pretty easy to stop with that uh, between a man and a woman. But when we get to and God, and that's what he says, you made a covenant with me. When you stood and you said, till death do us part, what did that mean? Till death do us part. And I know that that's hard to hear because because we live in a world that says, oh, we have irreconcilable differences. We fell out of love. We bring all of these excuses and it's just as big in the church as it is in the world. Do you realize that we have the same divorce rate in the church that we do out in the world. He says, it's a covenant relationship you come to. And and look what he talks about. He says, oh, the the wife of your youth. (laughs) Right? You get married and, oh, we're going to have kids and, and everything's good. And then it's not. And then we quit trying. And then we say, oh, we're just going to give up. And God says, no, you don't get that opportunity. God gives, God told us in Genesis chapter 2 that, that uh, in the very beginning when he made man and then he made woman, What did he say in Genesis chapter 2? For this reason, man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Now, who is he saying this to? Adam and Eve. Did they have a mother and father? No, God made them. He's saying, I want you to understand, this is not something that I'm just telling Adam and Eve. This is to go forward. This is for all of your time here on earth. 
They shall be joined together and they shall become one flesh. And in case you wonder, Jesus reiterated this in Matthew 19. And he said to them, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And he said, for this reason, man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife. And the two shall become one flesh so that they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, what? Let no man separate. Now, God is going to be gracious to us. God gives two reasons why people can divorce. Jesus said in Matthew 19, he said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it has not been this way. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. Immorality is one reason that God says you can divorce somebody. It's permissible. He doesn't say you have to. There's a whole other teaching on in God's word about what? Forgiveness and restoration. They come together. You cannot have restoration without forgiveness. The second reason he gives us in 1 Corinthians seven fifteen. I don't know what's going on with my clicker this morning. There we go. 1 Corinthians 7, 15. Yet if the unbelieving one leaves, let him leave. The brother or sister is not under bondage in such cases, but God has called us to peace. This is an area in which somebody has, maybe you, were, you married an unbeliever, which God doesn't agree with either. Or a spouse has become a believer and the other one hasn't. And God says, if they walk away, you're okay. Let them leave. But he urges us in this chapter, in 1 Corinthians 7, stay with them if you can. Now, a lot of you are going to say, but, but well, what, about, what about if it's unsafe? What if somebody's being cruel? What if somebody is, it's not a safe place to be? For believers, God does give us an opportunity for that, and it's called separation. In 1 Corinthians 7, 10 through 11, he says, But to the married I give instruction, not I but the Lord, that the wife should not leave her husband, but if she does leave, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband, and that the husband should not divorce his wife. God gives us the opportunity to work for uh, reconciliation. And that only comes when people change. So I'm not saying that you have to stay in a relationship that's abusive. You have to stay in some place that's not safe. But God says if you choose to leave and you're both believers, then you need to stay unmarried. Probably the greatest example of that that I've ever seen 
is Charles Stanley. How many of you watch Charles Stanley on television? Amazing preacher. Did you know he's divorced? His wife left him almost 20 years ago now. And he has never remarried. She filed for a divorce. And he said, I can't be part of it. But she went ahead and left. And he has still remained his ministry for over 20 years preaching the gospel. But he said, by God's word, I have to remain unmarried. If she, if she will repent and come back, that's fine. Now, now that I've said all that, I know it's a rough, rough topic. Let me say this. If you've been divorced, God knows. If you've remarried, God knows. God loves you. And he's going to take you exactly where you're at. And he's going to use you right where you're at. But you have to come to him humbly. You have to realize that that is something that God is going to use for his glory. And I want to say in this vein, God says that we are to be at peace. We're to be at peace. And the only way to be at peace is to watch your tongue. If you're divorced, you need to be very careful about how you speak about your, your divorced one. Or if you're separated. Because it becomes very easy to say, oh, my spouse did this or my spouse did that. And it becomes toxic. God calls us to be at peace. If, if that's happened in your life, be very, very careful how you speak about your husband or your, your spouse that you've been divorced from. Because they will be, especially if you have children, they're going to be the parent of your child for the rest of your life. So God calls us to a place, and the, and the folks had broken their relationship with each other, and it caused damage, and yet they didn't realize how much damage they had caused through those broken relationships. You know what? I love it when I see husbands and wives that have been married for 60, 70 years. And you know what I love to do? I say, we have all those been marital bliss? <laughs> no. There were rough times, but we always vowed to stay right by each other. And, and, and you, know, I, I, you know, when I see couples that are, that are in their 80s or 90s and they're sitting there holding hands, just like they were teenagers. And you realize what all they'd been through and they still love each other. Not because it's easy, but because it's a commitment between a man and a woman and God. Well, we're gonna move into one other aspect of, what he, of a relationship and that is our relationship with money. Our relationship with money in Malachi chapter 3, verse 8. He says this, Will man rob God? 
yet you are robbing me. But they said, how have we robbed you? Do you hear it? I mean, that's exactly what they're saying. How have we robbed you? In your tithes and offerings. You are cursed with a curse. You are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse so that they may have food in my house. And test me now on this, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open you for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you the blessing until it overflows. Then I will rebuke the devourer for you, so that you will not destroy the fruits of the ground, nor will your vine or the field cast its grapes, says the Lord of hosts. All nations will call you blessed, for you shall be a delightful land, says the Lord of hosts. You haven't brought the whole tide. Now let me, I, you don't hear me quite often. I don't talk a lot about tithes and offerings. Matter of fact, if you take my class on spiritual maturity, which we're gonna, we're gonna ask, we're gonna offer this next spring, uh, you'll find that tithe is just a, a, a word that's used in the Old Testament that means tenth, one-tenth. And a lot of us get hooked up on that because we think, okay, one-tenth, all right, I can do that. Well, do you realize that the Jewish people that was one-tenth, it just says one, it means one-tenth, but that wasn't all that they gave. You see, they started out with, a, with the first fruits. So the very best of the very first of the crop that came, they offered it to God. And then they had, another, they had a tenth, a tithe that went to the Levites. Because you remember the Levites? They didn't get any land they were dispersed throughout all of the land of Israel. They didn't get property. And so every year, every one of the Jewish people brought a tenth for the Levites. And then they brought another tenth for the tabernacle to take care of the priests. And finally, every third year, they gave another tenth for the poor. You're like, no, carry the two. Wow. They didn't just give a tenth. So if you want to live under the Old Testament, you're, you're, you probably need to make some adjustments in your, in your calculations when you're given. But God says, not only your tithes, but your offerings. You see, we live under grace. And we should give under grace. And as we, when we give under grace, then what happens is God says, okay, I'm going to bless you. Here you here, here's the formula. Okay, God, I'm going to give. And God says, okay, as long, if you give, I'm going to bless you. And when God blesses you, what you, should you do? Oh, thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. No. You should go, well, I'm going to give a little more. And then God says, okay. You can handle this. So I'm going to bless you some more. So you can give some more. God doesn't set a limit on how much you can give. And I can guarantee it's not a tenth. He says, I want to bless you till it's overflowing. I love that. 
Because you see, giving results in blessings. And blessings result in more giving. As a matter of fact, what did God say? He said, test me. Test me. See if you can outgive me. I would challenge any one of you to do that. We've got a new year coming on. Maybe it's time to say, okay, God, I'm going to put you to the test. Let's see what happens. Let's see what you, how you want to bless me. Because it says here, he says, I, I want to bless you till it's overflowing. See that in verse 10? Pour, I will pour out for you a blessing until it overflows. Jesus said in Luke 6, 38, Give, and it shall be given unto you. They will pour into your lap good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, for by your standard of measure it will be measured to you in return. God just wants to pour it out on you. And the picture here is if you've never been to the Middle East, most of the, most of the women there wear just a big piece of cloth. They'll, they'll wrap it around them and then they throw, they throw it up over their shoulder. And when they go to market, you know, it's not like, would you like paper or plastic? <laughs> right? No, they go to market and they open the fold. Well, how much would you like? Oh, well, I would like... Uh, 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 a couple, couple scoops of wheat. Well, okay, here you go. And they pour it in, and they pour it in, and then pretty soon it's like, wait, hold, hold on, it's, let me press it down a little bit here. And it keeps coming, and then until it's overflowing. That's the, that's the picture here. That's the way God wants to bless you when you give to him. It's overflowing above anything we can ask or think. He wants to bless us when we, when we are, are in a good relationship with money. Because the Bible doesn't say money is evil, does it? It says the, the love of money. When we get our focus on the wrong things, then God says, wait a second, you got to get your focus back on the right things. Well, we're going to finish up with looking ahead. You see, Malachi, like all the others, not only has a near prophecy for these people, I want to bless you now, but he also looks ahead to what is going to happen in the future. In Malachi 3, beginning in verse 16 through the end, says this, Then those who feared the Lord spoke to one another, and gave attention and heard it. You catch that? They heard what God said. And a book of remembrance was written before him, those who fear the Lord and who esteem his name. They will be mine, said the Lord of hosts, on the day that I prepare my possession, and I will spare them as a man spares his own son who serves him. So you will again distinguish between the righteous and the wicked, between the one who serves God and the one who does not serve him. 
For behold, the day is coming, burning like a furnace, and all the arrogant and every evildoer will be chaff. And the day is coming and will, be, and will set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness will rise with healing in its wings. And you will go forth and you will skip about like calves from the stall. You will tread down the wicked for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day which I am preparing, says the Lord of hosts. Remember the law of Moses, my servant. Even the statutes and the ordinances which I command him on Horeb for all Israel. Behold, I am going to send you Elijah, the prophet, before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. And he will restore the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers so that I will not come and smite the land with a curse. Wow. He says, he says, I'm going to write it down in my book. When you return to me, I'm going to write it down in my book. When you do the things that, uh, of repentance, I'm going to write it down in my, my book. I'm going to say, they are mine. Isn't that wonderful that the day that you got saved, God wrote your name in his book? And he says, you're mine. And he wrote it in indelible ink. It cannot be erased. It can't be blotted out. He said, you're mine. And then he says, I'm going I'm to bless you. I'm going to distinguish between the righteous and the wicked. And he says, behold, the day is coming. And it's going to be a hard day. Where is he looking at? He's looking at the terrible day of the Lord, which is going to be when? The great tribulation. But even in the great tribulation, look what he says. He says, behold, I'm going to send you Elijah, the prophet, before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. Elijah's going to preach. If we were to run over to the book of Revelation, we're going to see a picture of the two prophets that stand before the temple for three and a half years. They're going to preach, and they're going to preach the message of God to the Israelites. To the Jewish people. They're going to call them to repentance. And God is going to do a great work. And most theologians believe that one of those will be Elijah. Elijah will be one of those prophets that's going to stand. And he's going to say, you need to repent. You need to change your hearts. And, and then in verse 6 he says, and he will restore the hearts of the father to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers. God is going to restore Israel one day. During that great tribulation, it says he's even going to take them out. When everybody comes after them, he's going to take them out and he's going to shield them in the desert. They're going to come to Christ. 144,000 righteous men of Israel, 12,000 from every tribe are going to go all around the world. And they're going to be preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. And millions of Jews will begin to stream back to Jerusalem. Even though the Antichrist is going to be in the midst of his terrible campaign, he's going to come back and he's going to restore Israel. Because they have a thousand years of peace on earth. A thousand years that they will reign with Christ in Jerusalem. 
with Jesus on the throne. He says, I want you to look. I'm not done with you yet. And he says the same thing to us. He says, I'm not done with you yet. Even if you've walked away, even if you have have not done everything you should have, God says, I still, I have made you mine and I will restore your heart. Amen? As we leave Malachi, I want you to understand something. This is the last time God is going to talk to somebody for 400 years. Not until the New Testament, when Zechariah the priest goes into the temple and God talks to somebody again and he says, Zechariah, you're going to have a son. You're going to call him John. He is going to be the one who makes way for the Messiah. 400 years. I think somebody I know may be preaching on that coming up. I don't know. We'll see. But that's an amazing intro into our Christmas season. Jesus is coming. God is going to send a man and he's going to talk to us one more, once again to say, Jesus is coming. He's going to come as a little baby born in a stable in Bethlehem. But he's not going to stay there. He's going to grow up to be a man. He's going to walk this earth. And then he's going to die on a cross. And that death on the cross is going to be the payment for sin. All the Old Testament points to Jesus. All the Old Testament points to the cross. Jesus is coming. He's coming to save you and me. Because without sin, there is no remission of sin. There is no forgiveness.